Well, one day there was a rabid dog that was loose, and it was running around, foaming at the mouth, snapping at everybody. And one unfortunate man was bitten before they could capture the dog. Now, he was taken to the hospital. The doctors tested him after a period of time. Uh, His worst fears were confirmed that he had indeed contracted rabies. Now, because this was before a vaccine, a vaccine had been produced, it would mean death for the man. So the doctor told him, he said, you need to get your affairs in order as quickly as possible. I recommend you write a will. You take care of everything you need to do before you die. The man asked the doctor for a pen and paper, and he began to write a series of names down. And as the doctor watched this happening, he said, well, good for you. I'm glad to see you're making a will. And the man said, a will? This isn't a will. And he said, well, then what are all of those names you're writing? And the man said, well, these are the people I'm going to bite before I die. (laughs) Now, it's easy to want to seek revenge when others have hurt us, isn't it? But what God wants us to do instead is to seek reconciliation. And that's what we're going to see today in the Bible in Genesis chapter 45. Here we're going to see the story of a man named Joseph. We've been following Joseph for many weeks, and we've seen his story. And we've seen that if there was anybody out there who had a right to seek revenge, it was Joseph. You recall there were many who had heard him. There was Potiphar's wife who had falsely accused him and put him in prison because of it. There was the cupbearer to the king who had forgotten Joseph when he helped this man out while Joseph was in prison. But at the top of his list would have been his brothers. Ten of his brothers who hated him so much that all the way back when he was 17 years of age, they had thrown him in a pit and then sold him as a slave to slavery in Egypt. Joseph didn't see those brothers again for more than 20 years. And then one day they showed up as Joseph had been promoted to the place of prime minister in Egypt, the second most powerful man in the land, the guy who controlled uh, those who would live and die by the food that he was selling during the famine. Suddenly these brothers show up in desperate need. They're starving and they need food. Now, they didn't recognize Joseph, although he recognized them. And rather than reveal himself to his brothers, we saw that he put them through a series of tests to see if they had changed. He wanted to see if they would again abandon a brother as they had done to Joseph more than 20 years before. And so he's put them through this series of tests. And as we saw last time, they ended up passing with flying colors as they came back to Egypt rather than abandon uh, abandon their brother Benjamin. And so now we come to the point of the story where Joseph is about to reveal himself to the brothers. The curtain is about to be pulled back as we look at Genesis chapter 45. And as he does so, he sends all of the Egyptians out of the room. And this is what it says in Genesis 45, 1 through 3. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood before him. And he cried, have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Now, that's an understatement, I'm sure. 
You know, you'll recall that Joseph has been using a translator to this point, and these guys have been speaking freely in front of him. Remember all the things that they've said. We've seen how they were talking amongst themselves and saying, oh, this is all on us because of what we did to our brother Joseph. They were confessing their sins, not knowing he was right there. The prime minister was their brother listening to all of this. And and here he speaks for the first time in Hebrew to them, and he says, I am your brother Joseph. And you can imagine the shock. These guys are all standing there. Their mouths have fallen open. They're they're standing there in shock. I'm sure one or two of them may have fallen to the floor, almost fainting. And they're, they're all sitting there. And remember, Benjamin is in the room with them. Benjamin was the youngest brother who was not part of the treachery. And for more than 20 years, these guys have been lying to him, saying, well, you know, your, your brother Joseph was killed by a wild animal. He's no more. And all of a sudden, he's sitting here looking around going, you guys are all liars. You, you, you said bro, my brother Joseph was killed and you guys kidnapped him. You sold him into slavery. And Benjamin's the least of their worries. Because again, remember, Joseph is there. He's the guy who is in control. And, and it says Joseph is weeping, and I'm sure some of them started to cry too, right? These, these guys are wondering, what is he going to do to us? And they're about to find out because in, in verse 4, Joseph says to them, uh, the Hebrew word is nagash. He says, nagash, come here. Now, that sounds like a really angry word to us, but it's, it's a word that is actually the opposite because it, it not only has the meaning of come close in terms of a physical proximity, but it has the meaning of a closeness and intimacy. And so what Joseph is, these guys are all standing there shaking in fear. What Joseph does is he looks at them and he says, group hug. <laughs> and these guys are like, What? And he he says, Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And they're going, yeah, yeah, we, we, we know that. And he says, now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. Now, remember, these guys have already made two trips in two years. They're starving. And he says, guys, there's five more years to come. God sent me before you to preserve you for a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord over all, the ho- all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph. And they're thinking, we've been lying to dad for 20 plus years. And he says, go tell dad. God has made me Lord over all of Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen and you shall be near to me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. Therefore, I, I will also provide for you. For there are still five years of famine to come and you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen and you must hurry and bring my father down here. 
Then he fell on his brother's Benjamin's neck and he wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all his brothers and he wept on them. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. Now, verse 15 doesn't tell us what they talked about, but can you imagine? Over 20 years of missed memories are suddenly spilled out. They all start as the shock is wearing off, as Joseph, it says that he falls on them, not to hurt them, but he weeps on them. He, he maybe whispers in their ear, you're forgiven. You're forgiven to each one. And as these guys are sharing, they're saying, well, you know, Joseph, I got married and I've got kids. If they had iPhones in that day, they'd all be scrolling through saying, hey, hey, look, here's the picture and here's where we, we were at the, the Dead Sea, you know, and here's, here's the beach vacation. And, and Joseph would have said, hey, you know what? I've got two boys of my own, Manasseh and Ephraim. And he would have said, hey, guys, come out here and meet your uncles, you know, and so here, here's this huge family reunion that is taking place. It's little wonder why it says Joseph could not control himself, how he wept. He's been bottling this up for more than 20 years. And he's not only been hiding it from his brothers, but we're told the Egyptians didn't know either. Joseph has been hiding this from the Egyptians, and with good reason. I mean, imagine what would have happened. Remember the first time they showed up and Joseph told his steward, hey, I want you to invite these nomads to my house for a banquet. And he's going, what? Why? What if he had said, hey, these are my brothers who hurt me, who sold me into slavery. And they're saying, well, you're a prince of Egypt. You are like a son to Pharaoh. These are the guys who hurt you. We're going to hurt them. And so Joseph has been protecting his brothers by hiding their identity until this moment of reconciliation where he can say, it's okay. Things in the family that were fractured are healed. This is, these are my guys, my brothers. And we're going to see that Pharaoh will extend hospitality to Joseph's brothers. If you look ahead to verses 16 through 20, it says, Now when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go to the land of Canaan. Take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are ordered, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Do not concern yourself with your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. He says, just walk away from everything you have. I'm going to give you better than you ever owned before. Just come. Now, before we get these brothers back on the road to go home to Canaan, what we have to do is look at the road of reconciliation that we see Joseph walking down with him. Remember at this moment, they're shaking in fear. They're, they're standing before Joseph wondering, when is the other shoe going to drop? When, when is he going to get us for what we did? And instead what Joseph does is he walks through what I want us to think of as the ABCs of forgiveness. And the letter A begins by acknowledging the hurt. I want you to notice that as he deals with what has happened here, some people will tell you that, that forgiveness means sweeping the hurt under the rug, acting like it's no big deal. I mean, how many of us do this? Have you ever had somebody walk up to you and they say, look, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I hurt you. And what's our natural instinct? It's okay. It's okay, right? No big deal. You know, we're holding back tears. Our lip is quick. It's fine. That's not fine. You know, it's not okay. They hurt you. 
And you need to let the person know, you know, when you said that about me, it hurt. When you did this to me, it hurt. We need to acknowledge the hurt. If we simply bury it, how many of us have ever buried a hurt? And as we hide it away, does it go away? It festers, doesn't it? We talked last time about time doesn't heal all wounds. Time heals clean wounds. You have to clean it out. You have to deal with the sin. You have to deal with the hurt. And so many times we bury the hurt when what God says is first we need to acknowledge it because when we bury that stuff, it begins to pile up. Have you ever been in a relationship with somebody where finally something happens? It's that final proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back and some little minor offense and suddenly World War III happens and you go, oh my gosh, what just happened? Well, what just happened is the dam broke. All that stuff they've been stuffing, all those years, all that, think of the old gunny sacks, you know, that you had in the military where you would stuff all your gear in and load it up and carry it. And that's what they've been doing. And suddenly the dam breaks. So when somebody hurts you, you need to tell the person, that hurt me. Now, as we do that, please hear this. Don't do what we're tempted to do. Okay, you hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you back. You know, hurt people hurt people, don't they? And so when we've been hurt, when somebody's wronged us, we want to go by the old law of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? And if we do that, you know what ends up happening? We all end up toothless and blinded and bitter because we hurt other people. And if they're hurting us back, God says there is a, there is a better way to deal with it. Now, we're going to get to that, but a related mistake that happens as we're talking about this is what sometimes people also will tell you is forgiving means forgetting. Have you ever heard that? Just forget about it. Because if you haven't forgotten about it, you really haven't forgiven the person. Now, is that true? You know, God hasn't made us that way. God hasn't wired us that way. God didn't even forget about our sins, friends. What he did was he dealt with it. He covered it at the cross. He said, you are a sinner. You owe a penalty of death. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God said, there is a sin. I'm acknowledging you're a sinner and you have a problem. And I'm going to deal with it. So forgiving is not forgetting. Did Joseph forget the offense of the brothers? It's been more than 22 years. And what does he say to them? (laughs) Hey, you guys, you hurt me. You sold me into slavery. And remember, we saw earlier in this series that his firstborn son was named Manasseh. Do you remember what Manasseh means? God has made me forget. You see, Joseph didn't forget the wrong as in acting as if it never happened. What he did was he forgot the pain of the past. We talked about when you have a scar on your body, you can look at it as a reminder of a a disease or an injury you had, or you can look at it in a new way saying, that scar reminds me not just of the pain that happened, but it reminds me that healing has occurred. And that's what Joseph is doing. He's not forgetting the past. I quoted a guy by the name of Ian Duggard earlier in a previous message, and he said, what Joseph did by naming his son Manasseh was to reshape the significance of the past by putting it in the context of what God was doing in his life. His son became a permanent testimony of God's power to redeem the past. Did you notice that three times in this passage, Joseph said, God sent me here? He says, God was involved. This is where we see the sovereignty of God and the free will of man coming together. 
And we don't have enough time to go into what all that means for us. But God takes the sin of these brothers. God could have gotten Joseph to Egypt in many ways. But he says, you guys made a mess of things and I'm going to redeem it. And so Joseph, as he recognizes the pain of the past, says, I'm going to reshape the story. I'm going to see it from God's perspective. And God used the bad for the good. So he doesn't forget it. He acknowledges the pain of the past. And he sees it from God's vantage point. Now, those things are not always easy to see, are they? I mean, remember, we're on the other side of the story. Joseph went through 13 years in God's waiting room in prison, not knowing what was going to happen before his promotion. Then there were seven years of plenty. Now we're two years into the famine. And so Joseph has had a lot of time to walk through the pain of the past to get to this point. And some of you are still on that journey. But as you're on that journey, as you acknowledge the hurt that somebody has done, the next thing we need to do is we need to bring it. Now, there are going to be two things I want to talk about. The first one is we bring it to the surface. I already mentioned that it's when we bury something, when we hide the hurt of the past, it doesn't do any good. It just makes things worse. So as you bring the issue up, what we need to do is bring it to the person. And you say to the person specifically, this is how you hurt me. It helps to define the wrong. When I do couples counseling, often what I find is that there are two people in the room that are talking about sometimes two different issues. And, and you may have one that is talking about facts and another is talking about feelings. And so what you end up with are two people that, and you're going, we're, we're, not, we're not dealing with the same problem. We've got to define our terms. We've got to bring you two together and define the, the issues so that we can then begin to deal with the hurt and move toward the stage of healing. And so Joseph defines the issue. He says, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. He says, hey, guys, brothers, you betrayed me. Now, as we define the wrong, we have to be willing to release it. And this is the other B I want you to remember, to bring it to the cross. We have to bring it to the cross. Why do we bring it to the cross? Because that's where God brought our sins. That's where God dealt with our transgressions. That's where God said to, to you and to me, you are a sinner. And, and you are deserving of justice, punishment for your wrong. But I've extended mercy and grace. I've covered the wrong. I've provided the bridge. Jesus put that bridge over the chasm of our sin and he gave us the way to cross from where we were over the separation of sin to God. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me in John fourteen six. And if you're in a situation where you're saying to a person, you have hurt me and I cannot forgive you, what we have to do is we have to say, I'm gonna forgive you as God has forgiven me. And you let the cross become the bridge. Jesus provided the way. That's where our power to forgive comes from. We can cancel the debt because he canceled our debt. Have you ever prayed the Lord's Prayer? As you pray the Our Father, there's a line in there that says, Father, forgive us our transgressions as we forgive those who trespass against us. Some say, forgive us our sins as others have sinned against us. And so as you forgive the, we say to God, God, forgive my trespasses as I forgive the trespasses of others. Now, there was a little boy who was trying to pray the Lord's Prayer and, and he said, Father, forgive us our trash baskets as we forgive those who put trash in our baskets. 
Now, he kind of got the words messed up, but I think he got the concept pretty well, didn't he? You see, what God says to us is, (laughs) you guys have a dumpster load of garbage. You've been sinning against me. You've hurt me. You've transgressed against my law. You're a sinner. And what does God do to us? He empties it. And he says, when others are putting trash in your basket, when others are dumping on you, guess what? You need to do the same thing. Some of you will remember back before Germany was reunified, there was East Berlin, which was uh, communist controlled, and there was the West, which was free. And before the Berlin Wall had fully been built, uh, what they would often do on the East Berlin side is they would come and they'd dump their trash on the West Berlin side. Now, the West Berliners could have retaliated and dumped trash back on the East Berlin side. But instead, one time what happened is when they dumped a big load of stinking garbage on their side, the West Berliners got together and they got several truckloads of food and supplies and other needed necessities, and they piled them up neatly on the East Berlin side, and then they put a sign on top of it that said, each one gives what he has. Each one gives what he has. Why does it surprise us when those in the world dump on us? Because that's all the world really has to offer. But as Christians, 1 Thessalonians 5.15 tells us, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after which is good for one another and for all men. This takes us to the letter C which is where we need to cancel the debt. We need to be willing to cancel the debt. Now, as, as I say that, let me give a, a word of clarification here because just as I've told you, forgiveness doesn't mean forgetting. Forgiveness does not also mean when you cancel the debt that all consequences are gone. Some people wrongly think that just because you've forgiven a situation, that means all consequences are gone. But again, it doesn't necessarily work that way. If, if someone steals something, we can forgive them, but they may still have to face the consequences in court. There may still be charges that are pressed. If you're a spouse who has had another one cheat on you or hurt you in another way, you can forgive them, but there's been a relational rift that has been built in the, in the marriage, and trust has to be rebuilt. The forgiveness can be extended, but it may take time to rebuild the trust. So when we cancel the debt, it doesn't mean everything suddenly goes back as if it never happened. Sometimes there are things that have to, again, be dealt with and walked through. But when we cancel the debt, it means we remove it. The penalty is gone. We no longer hold on to our right for vengeance. And this is what God did with us. When we sin against him, he says the way we cancel our debt with him is through confession. In 1 John 1, 9, we're told, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God says when we confess our sins, he cancels the debt. He removes it. The consequence is still there. We can sin in this world, face worldly penalties. Crimes we've committed will have to be dealt with in court. Relational equity that has been destroyed will have to be rebuilt. And even with God, there was a consequence. His son had to come and take our place and die on the cross. But when we confess our sins, the good news is God has given us the bridge that that brings us back to God. 
that, that provides the way home again. And again, I keep pointing you to the cross because that is how we are able to forgive others who have hurt us. In Ephesians 4.32, we're told this, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. This is how we're able to extend forgiveness to others who have hurt us. It is through what Christ has done. In worldly terms, Joseph had every right to exact revenge. These are the brothers who hurt him. And remember, he's in the perfect position. He's the prime minister of Egypt. These guys are at his mercy. He could have said, you know what? An eye for an eye. I spent 13 years in prison and as a slave. So guess what, guys? You have an IOU. And after 13 years, I'll, I'll talk to you again. Have fun in prison. I'll bring you out in 13 years and, and we'll talk again about where we go from here. Is that what Joseph did? No. Have you ever tried to do that to somebody? I mean, when somebody hurts us, don't we put them in prison? And when we do, who, who ends up in prison? You've heard me talk about the story with my father before. And when, when I finally forgave him for all the abuse and kicking me out of the house, and my dad said, look, I never did anything wrong. I didn't hurt you. And at that moment, I said to my father, I forgive you. Whether you want it or not, I forgive you. And you know who got out of jail that day? It was me. What I found out is he hadn't given it much thought over the the previous three years. He didn't really care. The relationship was broken. He went on. He forgot about it. But I was the one who was living every day, losing sleep, being angry, carrying the hurt, carrying the bitterness. Does this sound familiar for anyone? And the other person that you think you have locked away in jail uh, has, has probably moved on. And when you let the other person out of prison, when you cancel the debt, you'll find the prisoner who gets set free is you. You're the one who offloads that hurt, that hate, the pain you've been carrying, the weight you've been dragging around. God says, cut the chain on it, release it, and let it go. Joseph had been robbed of years of his life, and and he could have said, you're going to pay that back, but instead he extended grace. He canceled the debt. If you read through 1 Corinthians 13 where it defines what love is, in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, it says, love does not take account of a wrong suffered. Love does not take account of a wrong suffered. And it's an actual accounting term that describes a ledger where you, you know, put down debts, and when they finally get paid off. And what God says is, clear the ledger, cancel the debt, remove it from the books. Joseph does this. He, he goes beyond even canceling the past debt. He also says, I'm going to provide for you in the future. He says in verses 10 and 11, you shall live in the land and I I will provide for you. It's going to come out of his account. Pharaoh says, bring your family, but Joseph is the guy who's in charge. Joseph is the guy who's going to be paying the bills out of his pocket. And he gives a down payment. As he talks about what I'm going to give to you, he loads them up with provisions to go home. And in verse 22, it says, and to each one of them, he gave changes of garments, but to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. Now, you'll remember that clothing was very expensive in that day. Most people only had one set of clothes. And you can imagine the brothers. They've been wearing these clothes all through the famine. There's been no money. The the land is a dust bowl. Everything is 
man, their clothes are probably rags. And they're standing there in front of Joseph. And what Joseph says is, look, I've got a new set of threads for each of you. And he brings out the best clothes they've ever worn. And and they put it on. Do you remember what started this whole hatred of the brothers back in chapter 37? It was the robe the multicolored robe that daddy had given to Joseph to show they were the favorites. And what does Joseph do? He takes something of significance in the story and he says, I'm going to put this on you. I'm not only going to cover you physically, but it's going to be a symbolic covering of your transgressions. And as Joseph says, you were forgiven. He gives him a tangible sign of that. And he strips away the old and he puts on new. Now, Benjamin, we're told, is given 300 pieces of of money and five changes of clothes. Now, we don't know why. Uh, Maybe it's because big brother Joseph says, look, I've missed 22 years of birthdays and special occasions. And here, Benjamin, I'm, I'm, I'm catching up on all of that. Whatever it is, remember we saw last time that when we have been blessed with so much anyway, how can we covet what others have? And so as Benjamin is loaded up with gifts, the brothers don't worry about it. Now, it says in verse 23, to his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on the journey. Now, again, I think there's some great significance here because you remember back in Genesis 43:18 when the brothers were first brought to Joseph's house for the big banquet, do you remember what they were worried about? They said, hey, he brought us here to steal our donkeys. Remember that? They had 10 donkeys there. And Joseph says, I'm sending back 20 more donkeys than you came with. I mean, Joseph has heard all this. He's laughing. (laughs) Yeah, I wanted your donkeys here. Here's 20 donkeys, new clothes, 20 donkeys, and gifts galore. And so as he sends them back, Joseph, knowing his family well, says to them in verse 22, hey, guys, listen, (laughs) no fighting on the way home. What parent would love to say, next road trip, no fighting. Everybody's going to be happy together. Joseph says, no talking about the past. Look, the past is the past. It's forgiven. Remember when Reuben said, hey, I told you guys we shouldn't have done it. He says, Reuben, look, look, the past is the past. No more talking about it. It's time for celebration. It's a reunion. Verses 24 through 28 say, so he sent his brothers away and they departed He said to them, do not quarrel on the journey. And then they went up from Egypt and they came to the land of Canaan to their father, Jacob. They told him saying, Joseph is still alive. And indeed, he is the ruler over all the land of Egypt. But Jacob was stunned for he did not believe them. When they told him the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them. And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of his father revived. Then Israel, Israel said, it is enough. My son, Joseph is still alive. I will go and I will see him before I die. Now next week, we're going to come back and we're going to look at this moment in a little more depth. But what we see happening here, remember, is Jacob for more than 20 years has, has believed his brother, his, his son, Joseph is dead because the brothers brought the ripped up garment covered in blood and said, hey, dad, what happened? Wild animal ripped him to shreds, Jacob says. My son is dead. He grieves. And as his sons show up, Jacob is shocked. He's looking at these guys saying, for decades you've told me he's dead. 
And they're going, well, you know, Dad, look, let's, Joseph said the past is the past. Let's just, you know, get on to the celebration, Dad. And remember, these are guys that have ripped off stuff before. They looted Shechem. They've done it. The only thing that makes Jacob believe them is he looks out and he sees this caravan of wagons, royal wagons, tricked out, best of the thing. It would be like seeing a line of dark-tinted black SUV luxury Escalades in some rural back area, and you're going, what is going on? And Jacob says, you guys have stolen stuff before, but this is way outside of your league. You know, he says, where did you get this stuff? I'm telling you, dad, it's Joseph. Joseph, he is the guy who is the number two. He is in charge of the most plentiful, powerful nation in the world. And he says, dad, you need to come. And Jacob says, it's enough. I'm going to go and see my son before I die. Now I want you to flip over to chapter 50. Because in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 15, we're going to fast forward 17 years to when Jacob actually does die. He makes the journey. He gets there. He's lived in the land for 17 years. And in Genesis 50 verse 15, it tells us this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us? And pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph. Saying, your father charged before he died, saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive. I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of of God and of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and they fell down before him and they said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid for am I in God's place? Remember that when we judge others. Am I in God's place? As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. Remember Joseph has already had this conversation. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. Now, this is 17 years later. And, and Joseph says, these guys say, you know, Joseph's going to get us now. You see, he was only nice to us because dad was still alive. And now he's going to get revenge. So let's concoct this plan. Let's come up with a story that daddy said, hey, forgive the boys and, you know, everything. And did you notice how Joseph reacted at the end of verse 17? It says, and he wept. He was grieved. He looks at these guys and he says, really, guys? For 17 years, you've been carrying this fear, this pain, you, didn't, didn't you hear me tell you I forgave you? I, I told you a long time ago, the account was cleared. I canceled the debt. And you've been carrying the weight and the guilt for 17 years. That's why he cries. It's not for him, it's for them. I wonder how many of us today are just like these guys. How, how many of us 
have heard God tell us that I nailed your sins to the cross, that the blood of my son washed your sin away. And yet, do we really believe it? Or do we carry around the guilt and we say, you know, I, I owe God big for this. I, I, you know, we, we look like uh, Peter at the redemption there at the end of the Gospel of John when he's running around trying to please Jesus, jumping in the water and dragging nets to shore and doing all this stuff. And, and Jesus is saying, Peter, Peter, I've already met with you. I already told you you were forgiven. Friends, when you hear a verse like 1 John 1, 9, where it says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you believe that? Do you really, really believe that? Do you believe that God cleared the account? That he canceled the debt? When you read Romans 8, 1, where it says, therefore there is now no condemnation, for those who are in Christ Jesus, do you believe that? Are we like the brothers, hearing we're forgiven, and yet secretly holding on to this, just wondering, when is God going to get us? When is God going to bring up that, that mistake of the past? When is he going to get us for what we've done? The Bible tells us God has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. There's a song that says God knows exactly how far it is. It's from one nail-scarred hand to the other. God has removed our sin from us. He separated it. Corey Tin Boom's father once said, God has thrown our sins into the deepest ocean and he has put up a no fishing sign. It's never again to be brought up. God has forgiven you. And me, when we come to Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 18, we're told, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. A new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself. Do you know what reconciliation means? Group hug, gentlemen. Group hug, ladies. Jesus' arms that were open wide, he said, I love you this much. And when we come to him, he surrounds us and he pulls us in and he says, you are a part of the family. You are my son. You are my daughter. You have been forgiven. You have been redeemed. It says, now all things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Do you see what God says? We who have been forgiven are to forgive others who have hurt us. It's time for us to quit being held hostage to the past mistakes. And it's time for us to quit trying to hold others hostage to the pain of the past that they've done to us. When we open the prison doors, friends, it is us. We are the ones who walk out free. And that's what God wants for you today. He doesn't want us to be crippled by the pain of the past. He wants us to be free in Christ Carl Menninger was a famous psychiatrist from the past. And he said, he's, he made this statement. He said, if he could convince the patients in his psychiatric hospital that their sins were forgiven, 75% of them would walk out free the next day. This is a psychiatrist saying, if he could just get people to understand that God has forgiven their sins, they would be set free what is crippling them, what has chained them would, would suddenly be broken, the doors would open and they would walk out free, whole and healed.
If you're still imprisoned by the pain of the past, I want you to know that God offers you forgiveness and freedom today. And it comes through the ABCs of forgiveness that we talked about. If you've never turned from your sins into Jesus Christ today, I invite you to do so. To begin by A, acknowledging that you are a sinner, that you've made a mistake. You've stolen, you've lied, you've gossiped, you've done something wrong in your life. We all have. The Bible tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all sinners, so acknowledge it. And then what God says is B, believe. Believe in his son, Jesus Christ. Believe that he is who he said he was, not just a man who walked the earth, but the God-man who took on flesh and blood so that he could take our place by going to the cross to pay the penalty of death that we owed for our sins. And then C, confess your sins. Say to God, I am a sinner, I owe a penalty of death, and I am turning to you, Jesus Christ, to be my payment, my Savior. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. If you've never taken that step of faith, I'm going to close today with a prayer. I'm going to invite you not to walk an aisle, raise your hand. I am going to invite you where you sit to say to God today, to do business with him, to say, maybe you, like the brothers, have been carrying something for decades. And God says, I want you to bring it to the cross today. I want you to leave it at the foot of the cross. I want you to nail it there. I want you to know that I died for that sin, for that mistake that you've made, and I offer you forgiveness today, no matter what it is. Vershon 1.9 said, he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all. There is no sin you have committed that Jesus Christ cannot remove today. But you have to acknowledge it, you have to bring it to the cross, and you have to receive his forgiveness. If you'd like to do that, please bow your head and pray this prayer with me. Lord God, I confess that I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes in my life. And because of that, I realize, God, that I owe a penalty, a penalty of death. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came and you took my place. I believe you are who you said you are, the Son of God, the one who came to be my Savior. And today, Jesus, I'm turning from my sin into you. I'm, I'm leaving the things that I've done at the foot of the cross. I'm, I'm letting your blood wash them away. I'm letting you remove them as far as the east is from the west, removing my sin from me and just throwing it in that ocean where it's never to be brought up again. Lord God, I thank you of your great love for me. I thank you for the truth of Romans 5.8 that you demonstrated your love for me that while I am a sinner, you, Jesus, died for me. I believe you took my place. You paid that penalty of death and that you rose from the dead three days later showing how you had conquered sin and death. I thank you, Lord, that you are in heaven today and one day I get to be with you because I've turned to you. I become a believer. I become a part of the family of God. Thank you, Jesus, for that gift of new life. Help me now, Lord, to live in the newness of my new life, to leave behind the guilt and the pain of the past, and to walk out of here today, Father, free, free from those things. Thank you, God, for your great gifts, gift and grace in my life. It's in the name of my Savior, Jesus, that I pray. Amen.
Friends, if you prayed that prayer, there are prayer leaders at the front. I'll be here. We'd love to talk to you to help you to take the next step. And for the rest of us who have come to faith in Jesus in the past, as Ephesians told us, we who have been forgiven need to forgive those who have hurt us. As Corinthians said, we who have been reconciled to God have been given the ministry of reconciliation. May we go into the world and share the good news. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You're dismissed.